Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back in to another exclusive episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. Today is a very special episode. It's our first ever mailbag episode. Uh, we have taken your questions from Facebook. We've taken your questions from Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and we're going to answer them. Uh, but first, we always have to hit it with the nerd news. Uh, Dave, what do you have for us this week? So I'm a big fan of the rebooted Tomb Raider video games, particularly the first one. Making Lara Croft the survivor who has to learn her skills the hard way was a lot of fun from a storytelling and a gameplay perspective. And then in 2018, they released a movie adaptation of the new rebooted Lara Croft starring Alicia Vikander. And, you know, I thought it was not as good as the game, but still all right. Um, definitely superior to the Angelina Jolie starring Tomb Raider movies. And I enjoyed this movie enough that I hoped there would be a sequel in which they could iron out some of the rough spots. Good news then when they announced a 2021 release date for an Alicia Vikander starring Tomb Raider 2. And then COVID hit. So MGM has now officially taken away Tomb Raider 2's release date. The sequel was scheduled to be released in theaters on March 19th, 2021. No new release date was announced, so the movie has essentially been delayed indefinitely. The sequel has not even started filming yet, so it looks like this could be the end of the line for the rebooted Tomb Raider movie franchise, another victim of the pandemic. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, so... My experience with Tomb Raider is quite limited. I sparingly played a few of the games back in the late 90s, maybe early 2000 era. Um, I did see the first film and I think part of the second film with the Angelina Jolie. And, you know, uh, I revisited the first one a couple years ago and it did not hold up well. Uh, it was very much a, a product of its time. Um, and I did not see this first one with uh, Alicia Vikander. But um, I've heard good things about it, and I've heard good things about her um, acting. I don't think well, it's one of those names you keep hearing tossed around in like fan castings and stuff. But I haven't. I don't think that I have seen any of her work. But um, I've always heard good things, um, and I'm really anxious to see like what's going forward. You know, you have Disney come out like we said a couple weeks ago, and like we're going to focus on Disney Plus at home stuff. Um, you have, you know, other big companies, Amazon studios are really just, you know, shifting most of their resources towards digital releases. Um, I'm just really curious to see what they're going to do with a lot of these blockbuster type films. Um, like who's going to, it's like a huge game of chicken and, you know, no one's going to give up. So I, I don't know what, you know, is going to go on from here. This is just wild to me. Yeah, uh, the the whole major motion picture industry right now is in such of a limbo because of you know the COVID nineteen shutdown and you know theaters are definitely struggling without new content. Many of them I, I know in our area are open and are just showing older movies. You know, still trying to stay afloat. Um, so th there is definitely a huge need for new content, but obviously given the situation right now, actually going to a theater and sitting down and watching a movie is. Uh, it, it, it's not a good look. So ultimately, I really hope that, you know, this, this Tomb Raider movie gets a second shot. But who, who knows at this point? It's it's kind of hard telling. Now, uh, Chris, your news uh, almost assassinated me. What's going on there? <laughs> well, um, 
I I had a nerd dream come true that I didn't even know that I had. Um, so Netflix announced um, that they are going to be making a live action uh, Assassin's Creed series. Not only that, they're also going to make be making an animated series and an anime series. So like, this is probably if I had to pick one video game franchise is probably my favorite. Uh, I love history. I love history. I love historical fiction. Um, I've previously told everybody how much I love Alexander Dumas and the Count of Monte Cristo, Three Musketeers. Uh, we, we we widely accept that it's a work of fiction, but just putting yourself in that period piece is just so fascinating to me. And weaving the way that they have you know woven these stories throughout these video games, like half the time I'm just annoyed with the gameplay, and I just want to watch the cinematics and and listen to the story. It's it's just been geniusly done. I also appreciate like the diverse creative team that they always have. You know. Um, a multi-ethnic group, multi-belief you know, belief system group that are, are behind this. So it's not, you know, just one set group of people telling one type of story from one perspective. So I've always appreciated that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in the minority, um, I think, with the 2016 Michael Fassbender film. While I didn't think it was fantastic, um, I also didn't think it was as awful as the reviews gave it. Um Poor Michael Fassbender's in a lot of bad movies. Um, uh, you know, most of them are in the X Men franchise. But um, I, I enjoyed good parts of that. I thought the cast was strong. When you've got Michael Fassbender, Jeremy Irons, and Marion Cotillard, you've got a good cast. And I just thought the pacing of it was probably its biggest sin. It just happened way too fast, and they crammed way too much in that film. But I'm excited to see. I feel like this is much more natural fit like a Netflix series or three. Um, I'm curious to see, you know, where they go with this, what type of story they want to tell. Are they going to revisit a story that's already been told in the video games? Are they going to, you know, they want to go somewhere else. You know, you've got Assassin's Creed Valhalla coming up uh, here in a couple of weeks, um, you know, that covers, you know, the Vikings. I'm I'm so psyched for this game. I, I love the Vikings. Um, I love that whole period of history and it's fascinating to me and I can't wait to dive in, but, um, I, I'm just really excited to see what comes of this. Um, and then, you know, Peter Friedlander, the Netflix original series VP said from its breathtaking historical worlds and massive global appeal is one of the best selling video game franchises of all time. We are committed to carefully crafting epic and thrilling entertainment based on this distinct IP and provide a deeper dive for fans and our members around the world to enjoy. So I'm, I'm all smiles here. Um, and I don't have to worry about visiting a theater to watch it. Dave, what do you think? Look, I'm going to be honest with you. When I was taking notes on all this, um, and kind of doing my research to prepare for this episode, I ended up looking back over things and I thought to myself, I'm a little sassy here. And I think it really starts in this particular place. I find myself surprisingly uninterested at this stage. <laughs> uh, per- perhaps that'll change in the future. This show doesn't have a showrunner yet. No setting or main character has been announced. No casting. Considering the huge variety in both setting and characters that the games have featured up to this point, it's really anybody's guess what this show will actually be. Uh, you know, will it take place during medieval times? Will it will it take place in Viking times? Um, will it take place in you know Victorian London? I mean, all these different settings and all these different characters have come through the games. Or will it be somewhere completely different? 
The movie adaptation also left me cold. You know, I love Fassbender's acting, and I'm very, very disappointed that he keeps getting cast in really, really uh, subpar movies. And I think, to me, the more I think about uh, the Assassin's Creed franchise as a whole, I, I think in a lot of ways it gets dragged down and held back by this, the, the present-day segments, which nobody has been able to really make work or or interesting at this point if you just take the historical part of the story and 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 kind of get away from the idea of the animus and and genetic memory and some person in the present day being on some mission and just focus on on the historical stuff then it's very interesting but then if you remove the, the animus and the present day segments, is it still Assassin's Creed or is it just some random historical fiction? It's kind of a, a an interesting, difficult proposition there. So, you know, meh, given Netflix's track record, uh, it'll probably run for two seasons and then, even if beloved and viewed by millions, will be unceremoniously cancelled without ever finishing its story. My hope is that this is going to be something along the lines of The Witcher, which really captivated me. Um, so I have hope that this is going to be good, but there's just so little information right now, uh, and, and the variety of the source material makes it difficult to predict what this might even look like. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, and I will fully admit, as much as I love this video game series, every time it, it goes into the present day, I'm like, oh my god, could we not? It's like one of those filler episodes in, in a, like um, a 23-episode season. You know, which are way too long to begin with. And then it's like, hey, here's this supporting character's backstory that I didn't care about. Sorry, um, I'm here for Daredevil. Karen Page is great as an ancillary character, but I don't need to know her whole backstory. I'm sorry. Uh, Can we please get back to like Bullseye and Kingpin, please? Thank you. Yeah, so I'm totally with you there. And and it is wide open. This is just the initial um, uh, announcement, but um, I'm I'm definitely going to be keeping my eyes peeled going forward. Yeah, I can agree with that. Let's 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 be cautiously optimistic. Uh, I think you know. I, I think I, for one, have been plenty negative in recent episodes. So I'm going to be cautiously optimistic that this is going to be amazing <laughs> once they figure out what they're going to do with it. Well, if they if and, and here's the thing too, and you hit the nail on the head. The Witcher was one of the few video game adaptations um, onto screen that worked. So that's giving me hope as well. Um, and I will, and I will say, I think the reason it worked is because it was first yep. a, a short story yep. collection and then a series of novels. And if you look at the, at season one of The Witcher, it is really much more an adaptation of the first set of Witcher short stories than an adaptation of the video game. So they had solid uh, source material to fall back on there. All right, that wraps up our nerd news segment. When we come back from this, our first break, we're going to dive deep deep into our mailbag and answer your questions stick around time for the nerdquisition chris i didn't ex- i didn't i didn't expect that Was A Quiet Place inspired by signs it comes at night in War for the Planet of the Apes? Was Ready Player One influenced by Avatar, Wreck-It Ralph, and The Last Starfighter? Is a Hurricane Heist more influenced by Sharknado or Geostorm? These are the kinds of questions my guest co-hosts and I discuss on my podcast, Piecing It Together. Every week we look at a new movie and try to figure out what other movies inspired it. Whether it's the story, the character development, tone, or even use of music. Every movie was influenced by something that came before it, and we want to figure out what. Check out Piecing It Together on your favorite podcast app or check us out on piecingpod.com. You can also follow us on social media at piecingpod. 
piecing it together as a part of the All Points West Podcast Network. And we're back for our Byword Big Talk of the Week, and we are answering your questions submitted through social media. First one comes from my buddy Joe in Wisconsin from Facebook. He asks us, if you were stranded on an island with only one comic book to read, what would it be and why? Dave, you go first. You know, I'm going to go with something comic book adjacent here. Um, so it's a little bit of a cheat, but I think uh, it's still fair. So so hear me out. I, I think the one thing that I could read over and over again on a deserted island for pretty much ever is Roger Stern's novelization of the Death and Return of Superman storyline. It's called The Death and Life of Superman and is one of my all-time favorite Superman stories. The thing to remember about the comic book storyline is that there were a lot of subplots and and a long time period where Superman was not a character in his own book. Uh, DC introduced four possible Supermen who all turned out not to be the original, and that went on for quite a while. The novel truncates some of these subplots and instead adds character work and and pathos to the story. And what was initially just bombastic entertainment actually has a lot of moving moments in the novelization. Stern does a fantastic job here capturing Superman's character. I love this book so much. I think it's actually superior to the comic books, at least on the writing front. The drawback, of course, being that you're missing out on some fantastic art. Still, I could read this one over and over again. The book is out of print, but there are so many used copies floating around online, it's pretty easy to pick up, even in hardback. And if you're a fan of the actual comic book storyline, The Death and Return of Superman, I think you will find that the novelization is actually even a hair better. Well, I I personally have not read that, but you said, you know, some magical words there. You said Roger Stern, and as as a big webhead, I know you know, what Roger Stern can do. So I, I, I'm going to trust your judgment on that because I love the stuff that he wrote for ASM in the eighties. So I'm going to trust your judgment there, especially with a character like Superman, who, you know, very, very well. So, and I, and I will say also, when it comes, when it comes to Stern, uh, he is a great comic book writer, uh, but shockingly good at prose as well. Now, uh, Chris, to turn the question over to you, if you were stranded on an island, what would you want to read and why? Um, when, when you when you give me like stranded on a desert island, like it is the same thing you've got to read over and over and over, and it's got to be something that you equally love, but you're not going to be irritated reading it over and over again. So it's got to have, you know, like a rereadability, I guess, um, if that's a word. So give me Ultimate Spider-Man, however much you can give me of Ultimate Spider-Man by Brian Michael Bendis, Mark Bagley. I mean, that, that for me, of all the comics that I've read in my entire life, that's the dream team right there. Bendis and Bagley on Ultimate Spider-Man. It's the best stuff that I've ever read. I go back to it regularly to revisit it. Um, this will tie into a future uh, a question that's coming up soon, but I can just relate so much to the ultimate Peter Parker, and that's why I really ride for Tom Holland's, you know, Spider-Man uh, with all the warts of the over-inclusiveness of the MCU with Tony Stark and all of that. I still hold a special place in my heart for Tom Holland uh, as Peter Parker because that's ultimate Peter. I mean, like you can't deny that it's ultimate Peter. And that's the one that I relate to. Um, 
And, you know, when I first, you know, read this book, I was like, oh, my God, like, and I never stopped. I read the entire, entire series, um, all 200 issues, um, like within a month or two. Um, even when it switched over to Miles, I loved that. His early Miles stuff, uh, Bendis's early Miles stuff is, is spot on as well. Super fascinating, especially with how young Miles was. So I'll, however much ultimate you will give me, if you'll let me bring an omnibus, give me that omnibus. If if you let me just bring like a trade, give me probably the learning to crawl trade. I think it's like the second trade, maybe the, the one where he faces off against Kingpin. That's that's mm, God, that's good stuff. But yeah, ultimate Spider-Man for me. Yeah, you know what? I can echo that, actually. Um, Ultimate Spider-Man is something incredibly, deeply special uh, to me as well. I had kind of lapsed out of reading comic books for a little while, at least, you know, month to month regularly. And so Ultimate Spider-Man is the thing that actually brought me back to, uh, you know, being a Wednesday warrior, so to speak. And it was by far one of my favorite books of all time. So... Um, yeah, I would totally endorse that. And I will say that Ultimate Spider-Man is going to be coming up later again. We are definitely not done with that particular series. All right. Our next question comes from also from Facebook from my new pal, Phil Russert. Uh, he's the owner and founder and promoter of Suffolk uh, Comic and Art Expo and CreatorCon Q&A up in New York. Um, and he asks us, what hero or villain, and I'm going to cheat a little bit, I'm going to say what hero and or villain do you relate to the most and why? All right, Chris, why don't you take this one first? All righty. So uh, I I teased it with my last answer, but for me, hero-wise, it's got to be Peter Parker. I have this, I even, I even, my wife understands this now. Like I have these floating heads of guilt when I screw up, when I, when I, have done something when I've even simple as put my foot in my mouth at a party or something or at a social event, I will continue to revisit that. And I have those, you know, floating heads of guilt, like, like Peter Wood. Um, I also just have that insatiable sense of having to do the right thing, even when it's like the most difficult thing. Um, what I, uh, even against insurmountable odds, you know, I've, I've got a lot of things that I've had to overcome in my life, you know, health conditions, um, you know, you know, the whole backstory. Um, and I always think back to the, the, the arc of, of ASM, nothing can stop the juggernaut, um, where there's no way that Peter should be able to face off against someone like the unstoppable juggernaut. Um, and yet he figures a way out to do it and he uses his brains. And, and I will say that that's one of the things that, um, I feel is lost in the MCU Spider-Man that I hope they really kind of retool and fix uh, is when when what I love most about Spider-Man is when he's outmatched when it comes to brawn or when it comes to, you know, strength or, you know, Doc Ock has six more um, arms than him or whatever. Like he'll figure out a way to use his brain to solve the problem and get him out of whatever pun intended sticky situation. So for me, it's gotta be Peter Parker. And then villain wise, um, I've made no secret about how much I love Magneto. And I feel like the best villains in any, you know, comics, novels, you know, film are the ones that you can relate to the most. And for me, it's Magneto. Um, especially when it comes to like recent events in the world it, you get to a point where, and, and like Malcolm X, the character he was in, you know, inspired by, 
um, you just get fed up with with the state of things and not enough progress, and you want to just take that within your own um, your own hands. And and you know, like we visited with that, uh, God loves man kills. You know, he can be on the side of the heroes. You know, because he he just wants you know his people to be safe. You know, so those are those are the two that I would relate with the most. Yeah, uh, you know, I would certainly say it's completely normal to say Peter Parker is one of the most relatable heroes of all time. He's down to earth. He's just an everyday dude with everyday struggles. So I totally get that. Um, not, probably not my answer, but but I totally can see why you find Peter Parker so relatable. I think that's really the core of that character and what makes him work. So Dave, what hero or or and or, you can do both if you want, what hero or villain do you relate to the most? Well, you know, my first instinct was to say that I don't relate to villains, but, you know, then again, some of the best villains are those who are sympathetic, like Magneto, whose point of view you can kind of see, who are relatable. So I thought about this a great deal, but I couldn't come up with a really satisfying answer for the villain part. Now, for the hero part, the one character I relate to the most is somebody who's considered completely unrelatable by a big chunk of the comic book community, and that's Superman. You know, when people talk about Superman's relatability, they always focus on his powers. He's too strong, they say, too overpowered, too godlike. How can you relate to him? Well, to me, because deep down, he's just a guy. He's Clark Kent. He grew up in a small town, and so did I. He was surrounded by farmland, and, well, so was I. He cares about others and tries to help whenever he can. And as a teacher, that's literally my mission statement. He's far from home. And as somebody who grew up in Germany and now lives in the U.S., I understand that feeling of being different, of of being from elsewhere. He believes in the truth so much that he became a journalist, and I teach students about journalism. Then there's the idea that we are really two people at all times, the, the private person and the public persona. Now, all superheroes have that baked into their DNA, but Superman is much more relatable here, too, because he doesn't wear a mask. His mask is the same mask we all wear. It's how he speaks, how he holds himself, how he interacts with others. We all change those things based on the situations we find ourselves in. Now, in many ways, Superman is considered more aspirational than anything else. He's in many ways the person we wished we we could be. But to say Superman is not relatable uh, has always been nonsense to me. I find him incredibly relatable. In fact, to me, he is really the most relatable superhero that I have ever read. Yeah, absolutely. I even like what um, Mike Lawrence said um, when we interviewed him. Um, he's got to be more Kansas than than Krypton. Um, you know, that really stood out to me. And the, and the best, you know, Superman stories, you know, really, really dive deep into that. Um, and, and it really, you know, when we visit this a little bit in the New Mutants thing, is because when you, when you really sit and think about it, Kansas is who he is. Sure, um, biology says that he's kryptonian and he has all these abilities and everything but you know it's the whole nature versus nurture he spent his entire life you know save whatever uh, you know small amount of time that he spent on krypton as an infant but the rest of the time he spent growing up on earth so he is just a good old farm boy who is now all of a sudden realizes he has all these things and he wants to do the right thing by it so i totally see where you're coming from and i can totally relate to that as well I'm going to give you an actually moment. It turns out that in the John Byrne reboot of Superman, they actually made the argument that Superman was born on Earth, that he was actually shot in a rocket in a birthing matrix, that he had not been born yet. 
and so he was actually technically born on Earth. I think in the current continuity they they have jettisoned that and went back to infant in rocket. But it's interesting to me that there are basically two different origin stories: one that says Superman was born on Krypton, and one that says he was conceived on Krypton but born <laughs> on Earth. <laughs> So the Kents are like a surrogate, and birthing matrix uh, is something that I just had to add to my nerd vocabulary. Yeah, you learned something new again. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now we head to the wonderful world of Twitter. Um, Joe at Pizza Sense Tinglin asks us, uh, and I feel very, very targeted in this question, if (laughs) if the Sins Past books were the last remaining comic books on the in the world would you read them or give up comic books for the rest of your existence dave what do you say to the sins past oh i mean yeah sure i'll read them i love having razor blades pushed under my fingernails and hot coals shoved <laughs> up my bum hole too yeah sure why not read sins past again so the short answer here without joking is is no i would not read sins past again even if they were the last comic books on earth There are simply comics I feel no compunction about ever wanting to revisit. For uh, the listener not familiar, by the way, Sins Past is a storyline in the Spider-Man comic books in which it is revealed that Gwen Stacy, who later died, had a torrid affair with the Green Goblin Norman Osborn while she was dating Peter Parker and gave birth to twins who rapidly aged and then came after Spider-Man in some weird revenge scheme. The story does some really horrible things to Gwen Stacy as a character. It recontextualizes an era of Spider-Man that didn't really need to be recontextualized and was marked by really good storytelling and kind of just... I, I don't want to use a, a word that I, you know, is, I don't usually use, but I think besmirch is kind of the right word here. It besmirches an entire era of Spider-Man storytelling. You know, Spidey has had the misfortune of a storyline that I dislike even more than since past, though, and that's One More Day. After reading that one, in which Spidey makes a deal with Marvel's devil to trade his marriage to save Aunt May's life, I was unable to read Spider-Man comic books for several years. I had such an anger in me that I actually rejected reading Spider-Man comic books for several years. Um, So when a story gives you nothing but displeasure, there's really no sense in reading it again. I can find a lot of redeeming qualities even in stories widely derided. Since past and one more day, though... Nah, man, nah, not not going there. Chris, what do you think about this one? Would you revisit Sins Past? Okay, so I think you... I'm really of two minds here, because my first instinct would be like, well, I need some kind of comic books. And it's a JMS book, who by and large has, you know, one of my favorite runs on ASM. So JMS is, is just a fantastic writer. But... It's undeniable, you have to admit, like, if, if we were to bring this before a court of law, and, and we were to come up with all the, ac- you know, acclimates of, of JMS and his run on ASM, he had the beautiful 9-11 issue of ASM, um, his run with, um, his, the, the parts where he and JRJR worked together were some of the best comics that I've ever read. But you also have to include that he was not, that he was responsible for not just one, but both of probably the worst story arcs in Spider-Man history. Not only did he write Sins Past, he also was, you know, writing um, One More Day. Now, whether that's an editorial top-down decision, Joe Quesada has, you know, kind of owned up to the One More Day thing. Um, but, uh, ay, ay, ay. 
I, I can't, I just, Dave, I, I hear the word since past and I can't get that panel of Norman Osborne's face out of my head. Oh, <laughs> oh God. Oh. So, um, for that reason alone, just that one image, I'm going to say hell to the gnaw. Well, I will, I will say now, uh, I've done a fair amount of reading, um, some of this from interviews, some of this from just, you know, random fan speculation. But the impression I have gotten, at least through my research over the years, is that um, since past was very much a, a JMS idea. But the initial um, notion behind the story was that these these two kids that rapidly aged and came after Spider-Man were initially uh, intended to be really Peter Parker's kids. But there was this editorial mandate that uh, Gwen Stacy and Peter never um, consummated their uh, love for each other, apparently. And so then uh, JMS bounced to the idea, apparently, of, of Harry Osborne, which at least would have made a little bit more sense as a contemporary and somebody who, you know, had been around Gwen. And, and then that was sort of rejected and they decided from editorially... Um, that Norman was the better call. And and I think it's very well known at this point that that One More Day was, in essence, rewritten in large part by Joe Casada. So, although there is plenty of JMS in there, uh, in the base idea, uh, I think it's fair to say that there was plenty of editorial meddling in those particular two stories. Oh boy, I, I'm, I'm still, I still have like vomit taste in my mouth. I'm going to need a second before we go on to the next question. Um... Speaking of Gwen Stacy, my pal Kevin Ewing, uh, you can find him on Twitter at Kevin Ewing 22. Again, I feel targeted with this question as well. Kevin and I have a, I, I will call it a healthy debate going for the last several years. He asks, after Mary Jane Watson, who is Peter Parker's best love interest and why is it Gwen Stacy over Black Cat? I would say, Chris, that you should definitely take a first crack at this, but I can already preview for you that I'm going to give you a serious curveball on this one. Well, I am Team Black Cat, um, and I have been ever since I read um, the 80s comics um, where where Spider-Man, not, not Peter Parker, because she didn't want him as Peter, boring old Peter Parker, but where, where Felicia and, and Spider-Man were dating, that was just like some of the some of the best you know, Spider-Man stuff. And, and, and here's my reasoning behind this. The reason that, that MJ is number one, the reason that MJ is number one for me. in if you had to do like a power ranking of, you know, love interest for Pete, um, is because she is, she holds her own for Pete's sake. You know, she, I don't, I don't know if it's still going right now, but the amazing Mary Jane, she has her own comic. She is not a super powered individual. She is that compelling of a character. She is that dynamic of a personality that she is. She has her own comic right now. Um, so it's so like she can hold her own and she keeps Peter honest and she gives it right back to him. And Felicia comes in second place there. Um, I feel like she really like can match him, you know, tit for tat. She can, you know, she matches the other side of his persona and you know they they really blend well and it's a much more interesting story and i'm sorry i know pouring out for for stan the man i know that gwen stacy was based on his wife Joni, but i think she is very vanilla and at least what we got in the late ditko and the romita run it was a very vanilla character it was kind of boring 
She was just another blonde girl, and she didn't really have any depth of character. And the most famous, the thing that she's most famous for is being killed by the Green Goblin when Jerry Conway took over. So I got to go with Felicia. What do you say, Dave? So first of all, when it comes to Gwen Stacy, I would agree with you. Uh, I think the best version of that particular character, besides perhaps uh, Spider-Gwen, is definitely Ultimate Gwen Stacy. Uh, she is uh, one of my all-time favorite characters, period. And and if you're more familiar uh, with Ultimate Gwen Stacy before really diving into um, main continuity Gwen Stacy, you find yourself a bit disappointed. How about Sissy Ironwood? I mean, she was great in those two appearances a few decades ago. Okay, okay, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm being facetious. But obviously, uh, Mary Jane is endgame. I mean, that's been clear for years. Uh, the marriage era is my era of Spider-Man. That's when I got into comic books again. Seeing him with anybody other than MJ always feels weird to me. So I've, I've kind of gonna just throw a curveball here and say Kitty Pride. Because in the Ultimate Universe, Spider-Man, as written by Brian Michael Bendis, dated Kitty Pryde of the X-Men for a good while, and it was really a joy to read. Kitty and Peter had real chemistry, a similar outlook on life, their superheroics uh, together were a lot of fun, and I think actually more fun even than some of the stuff that he did with Black Cat. Kitty is an awesome character in any universe, apparently. I learned that uh, recently by exploring more X-Men comics. But those issues when uh, her and Ultimate Peter dated were some of my favorite in the Ultimate Spider-Man run. I would argue that it was a huge missed opportunity that they did not try to replicate that and further explore that pairing in the 616 universe after you know the atrocity that was One More Day. I think that pairing would have been much more interesting than creating a new character in uh, Carly Cooper, uh, which ultimately, you know, didn't really go anywhere. Uh, so in the end, if Mary Jane were completely off the table for some reason, I would love to see Peter and Kitty give it another shot. Well, you don't have to sell me on Kitty Pride. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always here for that, no matter what universe, you know, she's in. Uh, yeah, I'm in the, the president of the Kitty Pride fan club. But um, also some love to Deb Whitman. You know, she was serially serially uh mistreated by the men in her life including peter parker so so deb whitman i would even place above gwen stacy sorry kev yeah i would say deb whitman that poor that poor girl needs some therapy after what peter put her through talk i know there's a lot of talk online about older comic books and how bad superman treated people around him but man the way peter treated deb that that was some down dirty stuff and then she had to go to a dude whose name was seriously biff rifkin Biff Rifkin. <laughs> uh, that'll never get old. <laughs> All right. Um, our good pal, friend of the show, the Tech Lord. You can find him on Twitter at Lex Pendragon asks us, what internet things do you guys like? And he gives us a bunch of suggestions. Um, Homestar Runner, Brunching Shuttlecocks, Control-Alt-Chicken, You Suck at Cooking, Hannah Hart's Music Videos. What internet-only nerdiness do you others want to share in parentheses? Yes, all of those are things I would recommend. You know, my internet nerdiness is pretty vanilla overall, but it's really strongly focused on YouTube, particularly gaming YouTubers. Now, to be clear, I really get no enjoyment out of watching other people play video games. So Let's Plays and Twitch streams, that, that's really not my thing. If I want to, you know play a video game, I'll play it myself. I don't want to watch other people play it. There is, however, a thriving community of gaming YouTubers that dig into retro gaming, reviews of games, historical documentaries, and the like. And that stuff is totally my jam. I think I watch gaming YouTubers more than actual TV. 
Obviously, I love the angry video game nerd. I mean, he's been around forever. And uh, the gaming historian. These are two excellent content creators. But I also love the, the quick are these games worth playing today videos of SNES Drunk. Or the totally awesome punching weight series of stop skeletons from fighting. In that one, they are basically talking about overly ambitious hardware pushing games. And then there's GameSack, which publishes 30 to 40 minute uh, videos weekly filled with uh, quick reviews of several games organized around a theme like games left in Japan that never came to the West. Those are absolutely fascinating. So yeah, I absolutely love gaming YouTubers. The more creative their content, the more willing they are to avoid watch me play a game style content, the more I want to watch. There is uh, some really good stuff there. Chris, how about you? What is uh, your internet nerdiness all about? So my internet, you know, based nerdiness is is quite remedial. Um, I don't spend a whole lot of time on YouTube. Um, recently, I've really gotten serious about playing The Division 2, as I've said on here. So I found um, a, a cool channel, GC Rock, um, that shows like tutorials. I, I, I'm right there with you. Um, when they do like live streams and like, hey, we're just doing this, watch us play. I'd rather play the game myself, thanks. But um, I do find it very, very helpful for, you know, finding, um, you know, equipment that I will need, you know, to help me with gameplay and unlocking features and, and tutorial type stuff, um, you know, that that a lot of it, you know, we talked about this in, in a previous episode a lot of that is is lost because we don't have instruction manuals anymore and we don't really have like the guidebooks that we used to have, you know, when we were growing up. So um, I, I kind of heavily rely on his channel um, for help there. Other than that, um, and that's a recent development. Other than that, um, when I go on the internet and I go to YouTube or anything, I usually want something that's going to make me laugh. I'm a huge nerd of comedy as well. I love watching stand-up comedy. I love to laugh. Um, when Will Ferrell came out with Funny or Die back in the mid-2000s, that was great. Pearl the Landlord is one of the best videos you can find on YouTube. Um, I also love, uh, you got me hooked on this one, I love epic rap battles of history. Yeah, I'm a big, <laughs> big, big history nerd, so I love that channel. And and you sent me one that was uh, Trump versus Biden, and I had totally forgotten about this. You know, so I hadn't even visited that channel, you know, in several years. Um, you know, I'd just been so consumed with other other types of media. Um, I also really, really love honest trailers. Those are always great, um, you know, especially for movies that take themselves way too seriously. I love the way that they break down, like, the X-Men films that are so awful. At least gives me some kind of enjoyment to point and laugh at them. Um, you know, the, what they did with the original Spider-Man trilogy is great. Um Oh, here's here's one that I absolutely love. Bad lip reading is probably my favorite internet thing. Bad lip reading is just great, especially when they can make a song out of it. Um, my entire household sings um, Seagulls, Stop It Now, the uh, Empire Strikes Back, bad lip reading of Yoda um, being poked in his coconut by uh, seagulls. So definitely check out Seagulls, Stop It Now. Uh, that's, that's probably my favorite channel's bad lip reading. And I will say, when it comes to internet nerdiness, and I kind of alluded to uh, this before, I really wished that there was a high-quality, deep-dive, strongly journalistic media outlet for comic book news and coverage. Because uh, I'm, I'm sorely disappointed with what we have right now. Um, 
and I don't mean to be uh, overly negative here, but the coverage is not nearly as interesting as I would hope. A lot of clickbaity stuff on, on websites like Comic Book Resources and, and ComicBook.com. Uh, if somebody could, you know, gather a decent uh, number of journalistically inclined nerds together and, and put together an actually good uh, comic book website, that would totally be my jam. Sounds like something that you and I should do. Oh, uh, do we need another project right now, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so yeah, that's something I would definitely love to find. Um, our, for our next set of questions, we head over to Instagram uh, from our pal who's local uh, here in Johnson City, uh, read.your.comics on Instagram. He says, now this, this is the one that really made me think. If you could relive any era of comics, what would it be? The golden, silver, bronze, copper, aluminum, tin? Well, I'm curious, Chris, you want to take this one first? Yeah, so just at first glance, just my gut reaction says Silver Age. Um, I'm a big Spider-Man, X-Men fan, as, as our fans know. But you also have, you know, in like 62, 63, you also have, you know, Iron Man, Captain America, the Avengers coming back, you know, into full swing. So I would probably go with Silver Age and just like how Marvel was really knocking it out of the park. And just to be able to relive all those things for the first time. Also to be able to buy comics for that cheap would be really, really nice. Um, uh, seeing Fantastic Four. And just going issue by issue by issue. And I know, like, it's few and far between when I find a series of current comics where I just have to be there at the comic shop, you know, getting that next issue. Um, and just being able to live in that era would be really, really cool where everything is just, you have to read it. Um, and, I, and I've got something like that I'll, t- I'll visit in our Nerd Commendation segment, but it's quite rare nowadays and maybe it's just because the market is flooded and there's so many good things to read but just to be living in that that perfect time uh you know of real just rebirth would be fascinating for me what do you say dave uh so if you thought that sissy ironwood was a hot take i'm about to hit you with another one (laughs) uh i missed the 90s now, I understand that there were problems. I mean, the never-ending clone saga of Spider-Man, the 8 billion variant covers, the questionable business decisions. I get it. All of it. The 90s, though, were prime comic book reading time for me. And it's hard for me to deny how much I love that era. You know, it's the era of Kyle Rayner, my favorite Green Lantern. It's the era of the death and return of Superman, a fantastic storyline. I'll even say that despite the mullet that he came back with from the grave, post-death Superman comics were awesome. I read them religiously. Morrison's JLA, which I've spoken about before, absolutely awesome comic and totally bonkers, released in the 90s. Batman's Nightfall storyline? Yeah, 90s. Then there's Vertigo, founded at DC in, yes, you guessed it, 1993. The imprint that shook the industry. Sandman, anybody? Hellblazer? That's 90s content right there. We also got the rise of Dark Horse Comics and the beginnings of Hellboy. And where would the industry be today without Image, also founded in, you guessed it, the 90s? One of my favorite characters ever. Witchblade, Sarah Pizzini, was created in the 90s. I feel like the 90s primarily get a bad reputation because, well, Marvel couldn't get their act together. Fighting words, Chris. The Clone Saga was a mess. <laughs> Hero Re- Heroes Reborn was a failure. It was not a good decade at Marvel until the late 90s. And based on everything that I have read uh, in uh, the totally awesome uh, multi-part column, uh, Life of Riley, it was really the marketing department that was influencing editorial decisions, which is why, frankly, uh, on the creative side, Marvel couldn't get their act together. 
But the rest of the industry was churning out good stuff for the most part. So this is me basically saying I want the 90s back. Uh, put a mullet on Superman and DC. Stop the black label stuff and bring back Vertigo. Well, there's a reason that VH1 had a whole series called I Love the 90s. Uh, I mean, like, you and I are both super nostalgic for that era. And I feel like a lot of those things, you know, comic-wise, were like those birthing things. Like, it was that newness. And, and sometimes, you know, when you're creating something, you know, sometimes you have some growing pains. And sometimes you have new things. Um, and sometimes it works right away. And sometimes, you know, you need to give it a little bit of time. But, you know, it, it, without those... Just think about how stagnant the industry would be without all the wonderful things that we enjoy now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, just looking at how things have changed, you know, uh, we, we've become even more backwards looking uh, in the comic book industry. If you look at DC, for example, you know, Kyle Rayner is still around, but hey, we needed to bring back Hal Jordan. And Wally West is kind of still around, but hey, we, we needed to bring back Barry Allen's Flash. Um, and I'm wondering at what point... Um, people of, of sort of my generation who loved some of the content of the 90s, who loved Kyle Rayner, who loved, you know, Barry, um, I mean, Wally West's uh, Flash, those people are going to come back around in the industry and say, hey, you know what, I want to write those characters again. Because it seems a lot like we're we're looking back primarily, you know, to the Silver Age at this point. Um, and there was good stuff in the 90s that I think we're losing sight of. Yeah, for sure. All right. Our next question comes from our pals at the Nerd Nostalgia Podcast. They ask, how will the X-Men and the Fantastic Four get introduced into the MCU? Multiverse, snap residual effect, or something else? Hmm. Well, you know, this is an interesting one. The Fantastic Four, I think, need none of those things. They don't need to be uh, multiverse characters or appear because of the snap. I think the accident that creates their team and gives them their powers can just occur at this point in the MCU's history. I think that's easy peasy. I don't think there's a major problem with the Fantastic Four not being established. Um, the X-Men are a lot more complicated to me, and I think we've talked a little bit about that before. I am not um, the X-Men guy, but I have, I think, a rudimentary understanding of the franchise and the characters. The MCU is a world where superheroes, people with powers, have done some amazing things, including undoing the snap and restoring all those people. It's a world that has no reason to differentiate between this guy was bitten by a spider and this person was born with these powers. So the inherent prejudice that's so uh, such a necessary ingredient of the X-Men uh, placed in a larger superhero continuity always gives me pause. Even in the comic books, it feels odd that people are okay with, you know, Captain America, who, who got a shot of, of drugs in the arm, basically, uh, but they're not okay uh, with... Wolverine, who was also experimented on, but happens to have been born with a healing factor. Um, it almost feels like this concept would work better in its own continuity. So I'm sure people much smarter than I am have already figured out uh, how to make this work. For me, though, I almost feel like having the X-Men on their own quote-unquote Earth in the multiverse would be more interesting, as it would allow them to have an established history, no other superheroes coloring public perception, and would, and would already be established then, and then cross them over with the main MCU. Uh, but, but that's just me, and I'm not exactly an X-Men expert, as I've already mentioned. Chris, since you are much deeper into the X-Men lore, what do you think here? See, I'm really, I, I don't know the perfect solution because all the points that you raised are absolutely valid. But I also feel um, it, that it has to be 
um, an evolutionary type thing. And if you move away, move too far away from that, I feel like the the opening monologue that Sir Patrick Stewart has in like the the first couple of X Men films are fascinating and it's spot on. Like it's one of the few things that the Fox X Men movies got right. Um, like so, I feel like if you move too far away from that. Um, you're going to lose a lot of what they are, uh, what what these characters are at their core. Also, you know, we talk about the heavy handedness of the connected universe in the MCU when it becomes just a bit too much. And, you know, with something as integral as, as the evolution of the human species into Homo superior, uh, you know, I, I'm worried that that would get a little bit too lost. So, I do. I dig your idea about them existing in another Earth and this just being a, a type of thing um, where they already existed. So that could work. Um, as and and that in that way you could still include the evolutionary bit. Um, and I I'm right there with you 100 percent about the Fantastic Four. That's an easy one to fix uh, or easy one to introduce. I don't I don't think that's overly complicated. Um, you know, you give them a little bit. I, I worry too, that they would do too heavy on an origin story and like having to establish these characters. But, um, you know, I feel like that's, you know, the, the whole accident, uh, you know, it could probably be updated, you know, a little bit more, you, you know, to 2020 standards from, you know, from what it was back in the 60s when it was written. So, um, but, you know, something along those lines, it'd be fine. I think it, uh, you know, thinking about it, if the if they're so desperate to have the Fantastic Four origin somehow uh, tied into continuity or something that previously happened, would have been interesting if they have their little space mission or um, negative zone mission or whatever you know whatever origin you're going with, and when Thanos does his little snap, some essential um, staff that is involved with that experiment is snapped away, and that's why they end up getting their powers. Boom. I mean, there you go. There you have your tie-in, if that's what you're, you know, looking for. But I I still don't think that's necessary, really. You know what I think? I, this just dawned on me. I had an aha moment. You know what I think would be potentially even more fascinating? I think it's a little bit, you know, that's been done with, you know, films like Far From Home. Um, you know, they explored the effects of Thanos's snap, I I would like to explore uh, Hulk's snap and, you know, the things of that or even Tony's snap. Like, um, you know, the things that, you know, w- what would happen after that? Like, because those haven't been really visited much at all. Um, you know, would She-Hulk tie into, um, you know, how are they going to do that? That So, like, would that be connected? Is it, Are they going to go straight, you know, continuity from the comics, you know, uh, a transfusion or whatever? But um, I think that if you wanted to make it super connected universe type stuff, then that would be something interesting to, to, uh, to dive into. I'm almost afraid, though, that moving forward... Uh, the MCU becomes so self-referential that everything is somehow tied into the whole Infinity Saga and snapping thing. Oh, Fantastic Four, snap. X-Men, snap. Everything, snap. Yeah. I, I, I definitely want Marvel to avoid that particular trap. Let's let's yeah. push forward and and leave that event in the past. I mean, still reference it, but it shouldn't be the trigger point for every story moving forward. I think that would be a mistake. Yeah, and and that's you know with all signs pointing to this multiverse of madness situation, I think that really makes it fascinating. You know, you also have you know, um, 
you also have two characters that are, you know, continuing being featured into the next phase of the MCU that are directly connected to specifically the X-Men. You have, you know, Wanda Maximoff, Scarlet Witch, you know, House of M. She was a mutant uh, until the, that was retconned with the the film rights, you know, situation. So a lot of people have speculated that it'll be a, like a reverse House of M thing where she speaks mutants into existence when she goes crazy. Um, and then Carol Danvers has a long history with the X-Men, especially Rogue. So, you know, those are some interesting things, you know, to think about going forward as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our next question comes from our pal Castle underscore Coulter on Instagram. He asks, do you guys think the X-Men are the most OP broken team in all of comics? Go for it, Chris. What do you think, X-Men guy? Uh, I, I really don't think so. While they do uh, feature like a, like a power set that are you know pretty substantial, um, you never really see a lot of X-Men stories where they just wipe the floor um you know with somebody um they always seem to have equally compelling or powerful villains you know you've got some really standalone you know awesome villains on the x-men side you've got apocalypse you've got magneto um you've got mystique you've got um you know you know a lot of compelling characters that can you know can hold their own so um yeah so i think i think it's super um I think it balances out in a way. So I don't I, I don't think they're super overpowered. Dave, you have very limited experience. What do, what have you seen uh in what you've read? Just as somebody who's fascinated by stories, I would just argue that there's no such thing as an overpowered or broken team or even overpowered or broken characters. No character is overpowered. Writers just need to write the challenges accordingly. I mean, look at the big seven Justice League. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, Martian Manhunter, and Aquaman. At least that's the big seven according to Grant Morrison. Those seven characters should be legitimately unbeatable when you put them in combination with each other. But when writers create smart stories with interesting antagonists, that's not an issue. You know, it's the old Superman argument. He's too powerful to be interesting. Nope, not true. Writers just need to adjust the challenges to his power level or challenge him in ways that his powers can't solve. And I think that's where the X-Men really shine. The X-Men's ultimate enemy isn't uh, some supervillain or another mutant. It's it's hate and prejudice, and their powers can't solve that problem. All right, our next question comes from our number one fan, the one and only Nerdpool Reborn on Instagram, who wrote an amazing article for us um, on The Cultured Nerd, so shouts to you. Um, he asks a really, really good question. Who is your favorite person you had on your show? And if there was one person you could interview, who would it be? Dave, what you got? This this one's a tough one. I mean, I don't honestly don't think we've had a bad interview yet. All the folks we've had who've been on our show have been a blast to talk to. Uh, it's been a little while since we've done an interview, and I'm really looking forward to diving back into that. As far as personal wish fulfillment, I think, I I love talking to Brian Q. Miller. It was probably the interview that left me the most starstruck. Uh, His work on Stephanie Brown, Batgirl, stands as some of the most fun I've had reading comics, and his Smallville Season 11 may have been the best Superman comic uh, book on the market at the time it was being released. Being able to ask him about his work on those series, which gave me so much joy over the years, that, that peek behind the curtain, that was an absolute blast. Um... But again, there was no bad interview. I've enjoyed every single conversation we've had on this show. Now, who would I like to interview? Jeez, who wouldn't I would? Who wouldn't I like to interview on the byword? Um, 
Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti come to mind, whose work on Power Girl and Starfire in particular are some of my favorites. Grant Morrison, because that guy's incredible and zany. Uh, Paul Dini, whose Batman and Zatanna are the definite versions of those characters to me. Uh, John Rogers, uh, mostly for his run on Blue Beetle, which is truly DC's ultimate Spider-Man, if you ask me. It's just so good. Um, there's also a YouTube media critic and author, Lindsay Ellis, who I'd love to speak with someday. I find her take on several issues surrounding filmmaking really interesting uh, and, and how she talks about story. I would love to ask her more about uh, some of her takes. Oh, and you know what? Um, Dan DiDio, who ran DC for years. There are so many odd moments in the direction DC took during his tenure there. I'd love to get a peek inside his head and figure out why things went down at DC the way they did on, under his leadership. But really, you know, anytime we get to talk to any creative individual is a good day in my book. Chris, how about you? Yeah, for sure. Um, th- this one's tough. I will say that that um, I sent a message to Mike Lawrence on Instagram one morning as I was leaving for work and it was like a, a Hail Mary with a wing and a prayer. And he messaged me back later that day. And then, you know, we were able to line up an interview and that was just amazing. I, I loved nerd of mouth and it really helped me get back into nerdy content, reading comic books and stuff like that. But if I had to pick one, I think Paul Jenkins was probably one of the most insightful um, and, you know, just really, emotionally resonant um for me he's written some really amazing stuff um that i really uh, spectacular spider-man 14 when he writes about from the perspective of a character who lives with cerebral palsy and i you know that's something i identify with i i live with slight cerebral palsy um but you know i i could definitely relate to that and being able to thank him for writing something that was so powerful to me um, and that I could relate to. And then also just his entire ethos about creator's rights and standing up for the little guy and not letting these corporate overlords, you know, run you down and, and take advantage of you. I, I, I left that interview wanting to like do everything. I wanted to create a bunch of stuff and I, by God, I was going to get, you know, my, my due diligence for it. And I wanted to take up my flag and, and fight for your right, you know. Um, not to party, but to, you know, create good content. Um, so I, I, if I had to pick one, I would probably say Paul Jenkins, but also we also had John Jackson Miller who like, so good. That was like taking, that was dude, that was like taking like a doctoral course on nerdery and like, you know, comic book sales and Star Trek and Star Wars. And, you know, I got to read a fantastic novel, um, from the Star Trek Discovery universe. So like that was amazing. If I had to, if, if you, you know, if I had like a Mount Rushmore of people I'd love to talk to, the top of my list right now would probably be Jonathan Hickman. Um, I, you know, I've touted his work time and again on this show. Um, I know Dave is overwhelmed by, you know, current X-Men stuff, the Dawn of X books, but that's partially probably because he is such an intricate world builder. Um, the way that he plans things out across several titles, it's not just one book that he's writing. He's like the head of X now. And every single title, um, you know, there are minute details. Like I'm reading the X of Swords event right now. 
And, you know, every little detail from every individual book is paying off in the long run. And it was the same thing with his previous, you know, Marvel run of, of Secret Warriors and Fantastic Four and Avengers. Um, and then, you know, the inf- Infinity, his event, his event Infinity is one of the best events that I've ever read as well. And then Secret, his Secret Wars is probably my favorite crossover that I've ever read. Um, and just I'd love to pick his brain about how he goes about setting out years and years of, you know, world building and payoffs and, and stuff like that, you know, and, and how all of that works, the planning process. Um, I'd also love to talk to Jason Aaron. He's written some of my favorite comic books. His stuff on Thor is just so inspirational. It's so wonderful. It's probably one of, you know, the people who understands his character the most. I also love his Wolverine and the X-Men. Um, from earlier in this decade. Um, I'd love to talk to the Godfather of mutants. I'd love to talk to Chris Claremont. Like that would be a dream come true. Um, he's written some of my favorite stuff. So like, you know, like you said, it's, it's really hard to, to pick, um, Kevin Eastman as well. Like he created, he co-created, uh, you know, the Ninja Turtles and he's still just like a big kid. I love seeing pictures of Kevin Eastman now. And he's just got like TMNT swag all over his, his, you know, face mask that he wears, uh, in public, it has turtles all over. He's got a turtles ball cap, a turtles t-shirt. He's just like a big kid, um, just loving life, and and it's really great. So I'd love to to pick his brain as well. Yeah, there's hopefully we'll we'll have an opportunity to still speak to um, many creators uh, as we continue with this podcast. I, I'm really looking forward to continuing the interviewing process. All right, our final question comes from our pal Joe Z Sketches on Instagram, who, if you haven't seen his artwork, go to his Instagram page. Again, that's Joe Z Sketches. He has some really, really cool um, stuff to look at. So um, he asks us, top three best X-Men villains and top three worst. Dave, um, I love you. You're a bit of a noob in this category, but what do you, what, do you, what can you come up with? So here I go. Uh, I'm out. Uh, no, I, I, just, I don't know enough about the X-Men to literally come up with three great and three bad villains. I, I can do part of that. I think, obviously, Magneto is the right answer for best, uh, followed probably by uh, Mystique and Juggernaut. Uh, both of those I have some experience with, and I think they uh, work extremely well as villains. As far as worst, um, Emma Frost. Uh, because I dislike the character, and I feel she's the worst villain and the worst hero at the same time. Uh, I have yet to find a writer that really made that character work for me. Uh, also, I, I wasn't really fond uh, of, of Joss Whedon's danger. The whole, like, danger room becomes sentient and is, like, evil or kind of evil or maybe evil or shifting allegiances and all that. It, it kind of fell flat for me. But other than that, I don't think I have... Um, enough exposure to the X-Men universe to, to make a, a educated call on some of the other villains. Apocalypse, for example, I've not encountered at all yet, except for in a very poor live-action adaptation. That, that, so, that doesn't count. That doesn't yeah. count. <laughs> so, Chris, I'm going to go ahead and punt this over to you as the more experienced X-Men reader. What you got? All right, so the, this um, this rogues gallery, Dave, once you get into it, um, if the time comes, it's really going to rival, you know, Spidey and Batman, like simply because it's a team up book. There are so many villains and, you know, over the course of, you know, however many years X-Men have been around there, there've been so 
Uh, so many. So I'll start with the best. And number one has got to be Magneto. He's the most compelling. He's he's the one that you can agree with the most. So much so that he's been on the side of the heroes for you know a good part of his history. Um, and you know even recently for the past probably six or seven years he's consistently been uh, on on the good guy's side. Um, number two, Apocalypse. Apocalypse is just a fascinating character. I love history. So the whole Egyptology, ancient Egypt factor, and Sabah Nur, he's the first mutant. Like, and that whole ethos of survival of the fittest, which if, if you're reading current X-Men, they really dove into like the, the backstory behind that recently for the first time. And that was fascinating. If I had to pick a third one, it would have to be Mystique. Um, She's just fascinating. There's so much depth to that character. Um, the fact that she has become like a paragon and a rallying icon for the LGBT community. Um, and the fact that Chris Claremont back in the 80s, 70s and 80s wanted to make her straight up a lesbian character. But they would not let him, you know, an editorial is just amazing. And the fact that she can, you know, be free to be who she is now and, and that duality, the fact that, you know, she is Rogue's adopted mother and all of the complications that that brings, um, you know, is just fascinating. And the fact that she can shapeshift her power set, you know, lends itself to just dynamic storytelling just by the fact that she can shapeshift into whoever she wants to be. and. You know, there have been long stretches of history, uh, you know, comic history where she's just been, you know, I, I just got done reading an arc where she was posing as Dazzler, you know, for a good chunk of issues, you know, infiltrating S.H.I.E.L.D. for, you know, months and months of, of real time. So she's super fascinating to me. If I had to pick the three worst, they're not necessarily the worst. They're probably, for me, the most annoying. Um, I don't look forward to those stories. Um, and I may make some people angry with this, but Mojo, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of Mojo. The Mojo verse is, is kind of weird. I know that it's an, I, parts of it I do appreciate the fact that the Mojo verse is like this criticism of watching too much television, television and like being, you know, driven by ratings and entertainment. I, I appreciate the social criticism of that, but, but, you know, Mojo himself is just creepy looking. We even got a look at him in the animated series and he's just creepy looking and, and just gross. Um, uh, let's see. Who else do I want to drop on? Um, I'll, I'll second what you said about about Emma. Yeah, she's really just... she. They, what they really go for is something that I just don't vibe with. They, they really go for this like plastic surgery, like elite housewife, like upper class type of vibe. And that just doesn't land with me. I don't relate to that at all. I will say, um, ever since they, the Dawn of X, I have enjoyed her storylines more. I've enjoyed the way she's been written a lot more. Um, especially in the Marauders book that I recommended a couple of months ago. So, um, I really like the way Jerry Duggan writes her. I like the way Hickman writes her, Teeny Howard writes her. So I do enjoy that. Um, if I have to pick a third one, mm, let's see. God, 
it's hard. Oh, here we go. Nanny and Orphan Maker. They're a package deal. Nanny and Orphan Maker are just creepy and weird. Um, and I know that they're a Claremont creation. But the fact that she's just like this robot egg and he's just like this large robot. It's just weird. It never I never really liked it. Um, and I know that might, you know, set some people off because it's a Claremont creation. And it was done during um, I believe it was during the Outback era of X-Men. And, you know, I love that era. And it's really, really great. But Nanny and Orphan Maker, just not not a fan of. Looks like I have a lot of stuff to learn. Oh, yeah, you do. For sure. Um that wraps up our Byword Big Talk. We thank everybody that that participated, that sent us questions, that got involved. We got way much more uh, involvement than we could have anticipated, especially for our first mailbag uh, episode. So thanks again to everybody. Go and, and follow all these folks on Instagram, Twitter, and, and friend them on Facebook and check out their stuff. Um, when we come back from our final break, we're going to re-enter the world of nerd commendations. I'm Jesse, and I'm Ryan, and we're the hosts of Not My Type. One couple, two personalities, and we're taking three million internet quizzes. Approximately. For non-serious conversations about serious fandoms, check us out at Not My Type. Each episode, we take BuzzFeed-style quizzes to explore a movie, TV series, or a book. As many fandoms as we can get our hands on. New episodes come out each Wednesday, and if you want to find out more about the show, go to notmytypepod.com and anywhere podcasts are found. Pretty much everywhere these days. See you there. All right, we're back here on our final segment of the Nerd Byword podcast. We are back with nerd commendations, nerdy things that we've been enjoying that we want to share out with you and tell you to check out as well. Dave, what is your first nerd commendation of the month of November? So first, I would like to nerd commend uh, that everybody should find a friend that's never watched a scary movie and making them watch four in the month of <laughs> October. That is my first nerd commendation. Uh, so w- without actually joking, I, w- I want to talk about uh, Miss Marvel a little bit, specifically the Kamala Khan version. Um, in my never-ending quest to find some comic books that are simply fun in the vein of something like Starfire or Power Girl by Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti or Brian Q. Miller's Batgirl, I finally stumbled upon Miss Marvel, Kamala Khan, and this character rocks. So far, I've read the first volume of her adventures, extending uh, through 19 issues and leading directly into the Secret Wars event miniseries. These 19 issues may be some of the most perfect comics I've read. Uh, Written by G. Willow Wilson with art by Adrian Alfona, it may be the most fun I've had reading comics in quite a while. So Kamala is an ordinary girl from Jersey City until she's exposed to Terrigen Mist that unlocks her innate superpowers. A huge fan of Captain Marvel Carol Danvers, she takes on her idol's old moniker and becomes Miss Marvel. She's just such a great character. She embodies all of the traits that I enjoyed so much in Brian Q. Miller's take on Stephanie Brown. She's optimistic, bright, caring, a ray of sunshine with a can-do attitude and a love for doing good. The fact that she is Muslim adds so many interesting cultural elements to the story that I don't think have ever been properly explored in mainstream superhero comics. Her interactions with the larger Marvel Universe begin only gradually in this first volume. By volume 2, she's an Avenger. But I almost like this low-key take of the first volume better. A highlight is when Wolverine, of all people, guest stars in the book and has some of the best, most 
fun interactions with Kamala in the whole series. Uh, when her idol Captain Marvel finally shows up at the end of the first volume and, and they meet, it's a stand-up and cheer moment, even th though they both believe the world is about to end. But my favorite moment by far is her first meeting with inhuman dog Lockjaw. He approaches her on the street. Uh, people are running away screaming in fear. Kamala takes one look at Lockjaw and immediately starts petting him. No fear, only joy. In short, I'm hooked and I'm starting to read volume two. I'm so glad this book exists. Anybody who has not been enchanted by Kamala yet owes it to themselves to read this book. Chris, what do you think? Oh man, I, 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 I'm, I'm really ashamed that I haven't read um, this title yet. Um, I've heard also great things about Saladin Ahmed's, you know, current take on the character himself being a Muslim man, you know, brings like a level of authenticity to the title as well. So that's super fascinating. And I said this a couple of weeks ago, I love reading diverse authors and, and creators because it brings a, a level of perspective that I would never have, you know, uh, as, you know, a standard, regular old boring white guy so like it, it's super fascinating to just embrace the diversity of this and i love everything about kamala khan that i have seen um in other books every time that she meets up with like peter parker or miles morales i absolutely love it it's like basically dave it's like what if a fangirl got superpowers like that's what it is and I played the beta version of, of the Avengers video game, and that was one of the most fun aspects about it. Now, I know that, you know, a lot of people have said this or that about the game, you know, and, you know, punching a bunch of robots and, like, the repetitive nature of it, and, and, and there have been some critiques of it. But that aspect I thoroughly enjoyed uh, of seeing her on screen and, and represented, and I, I really, really just need to dive into this. Yeah, and I'm really excited that they've already now cast uh, a, a newcomer in uh, the role of Kamala Khan for a uh, Marvel TV series, uh, which just is exciting to no end and, and gives such a great potential for the series to eventually cross over with you know the Captain Marvel movies. Um, it's just so exciting and such a great character. I cannot say enough about this character. One of the, the best, more recent uh, additions, I think, to, to Marvel canon. I cannot wait to continue reading these stories. Now, Chris, what have you got? I'm also, you know, going against the grain here because we usually like to feature lesser known titles or whatever um, in this segment. But guys, I am recommending a book that was just released two days ago on the 28th of October. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Last Ronin Number 1. It's been heavily touted. Um, it's been sold out of a lot of places. I was lucky enough to find a copy at my LCS and guys, it does not disappoint. You really, really, I cannot say, go read this book. I'm going to read the synopsis for those of you who are completely, um, you know, new to this title. It's got Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, the co-creators of the Ninja Turtles involved. Um, Kevin Eastman has been regularly involved with the current IDW title. He's been co-authoring with Tom Waltz. And these guys, of course, Kevin Eastman, but Tom Waltz as well. These guys know how to write the turtles. Like, it is perfect. So here's, here's the synopsis I'm reading directly from uh, Amazon. It's the TMNT event of 2020. Springing from the minds of TMNT co-creators Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird comes an epic like you've never seen before in a future NYC Far different than the one we know today, a lone surviving turtle goes on a seemingly hopeless mission to obtain justice 
for his fallen family and friends, kinetic layouts from Eastman, moody inks from Andy Kuhn, and a thrilling script full of surprises from longtime TMNT scribe Tom Waltz all combined to make this one of the most memorable TMNT stories you'll ever read. This is a perennial TMNT tale that can't be missed. Now, a couple of heads up. The issue is eight ninety nine. It's a double it's like, you know, like the first issue, double sized, whatever. So it's a little bit steeper in price. Also, if you're a collector, be prepared. It's a little bit awkward. It's it's larger than a standard comic. Um, you know, so if you're trying to keep that um uh, you know, in a bag and a board. Um, I heard some friends say that they put it in a top loader and, and that was okay. Um, if you're, if you're wanting to keep it collected and if you can find a copy, snatch it up because these are already selling for like twice the price, sometimes three times the price online from what I've seen on eBay and Instagram and stuff like that. So, um, even our local guy almost talked me into the beautiful Eastman variant cover for, for $30. I'm, I may go back and get it. I don't know. But the story itself, guys, is, is, is just fascinating. There is only one of the brothers, and I'm not going to spoil who it is. Only one of the brothers has survived, and he's in the future. And it's almost like something out of like a video game or like a, a samurai film. He is the last one standing, and you can knock him down. You can bloody his face, but he keeps getting back up and he falls out of like a a window and gets right back up and he's taking on the entire foot clan for what they've done to his family and it's just amazing like this tale of vengeance and justice and i I can't say enough about it it's it's fascinating and and i i'm about to go reread it for like the third time and i'm surprised they haven't done this sooner i mean it's basically um the dark turtle uh returns or old man turtle yeah uh these these, these sorts of ideas have been floating around um, mainstream comics for a while and and turtles definitely lend themselves to this alternative take i've not read this although i'm i'm aware and i'm aware of the spoilers of, of the story as well and i would say it's a it's a good it's good choices that they're making in the storytelling it's definitely interesting uh i'm going to be picking it up uh as soon as i can and uh, probably will be following the series just because uh, seeing uh, that particular brother being the last one standing, I think is going to be extremely interesting moving forward. Absolutely. And also really inspired me. I, th- this is how serious it is, guys. I had to hit the pause button on my X-Men read through. And now I'm binging the entire IDW series by Tom Waltz and Kevin Eastman and company. Like it's that good. And and the, the current IDW series is that good as well. So you can find that on Comixology Unlimited. You can find the first, I want to say eight to 10 trades before you have to start, you know, paying extra for it. But um I love everything about these books and they're so well written. Um, they've, they've shaped, uh, they've reshaped the origin stories a little bit. Um, but it's, it's fast. It's a fascinating take and I'm taking it in stride and I love what they've done with the characters. Yeah, I agree. I, I cannot, uh, speak highly enough of the IDW turtle series. The main turtle series has been ticking for over a hundred issues now and it's just solid from top to bottom. So, uh, good turtles content all around. All right, guys, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. We thank you so much for stopping by. Thanks again to all of our participants in the mailbag. Thanks for sending in your questions. Thanks for all of your support across all of our social media platforms. You can, again, find us on Instagram and Twitter at Nerd by Word. 
uh, Facebook at the Nerd by Word, and you can find us both individually on Instagram and Twitter at that Nerd Dave and at that Nerd uh, Chris, respectively. And of course, don't forget you can find our podcast wherever podcasts are available, uh, including, of course, uh, iTunes. Uh, most recently, Amazon. Uh, use that Alexa skill and tell it to play the Nerd by Word. I think uh, that is a really really cool thing uh drop us a review and a rating we love to hear what you think and uh, as always thank you for listening absolutely guys so again that's all major every every major podcasting platform iHeartRadio, spotify wherever you want to find a podcast or our beautiful website nerdbyword.com and as always stay well and stay nerdy the Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. <laughs>